the uh, What Would You Do If program. Many of you might remember a while ago there was, an ep- there was a show called Conversations with Chris, and Chris Clevenger and I would talk about matters that pertain to different questions and scenarios that might come up. Um, Wayne Rogers, who is the minister over in the East Side uh, Church of Christ over in Maryville, Tennessee, he hosts that program with me. The Far Better uh, is a podcast that you can find on all major platforms if you are interested in that sort of thing. And uh, what, we, what I try to do is try to do three 15-minute episodes a week. Um, usually what I do is I take a sermon like I just did and I do a point per episode. And so if that's something that interests you, um, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, pretty much any podcast format. But um, we're currently in between seasons, so there won't be any new episodes until a couple weeks from now. Uh, Again, it is a joy and a privilege to be here with you today, and we're talking in this particular hour on don't get into things that hurt you. There's a lot we could say, and I want to go ahead and, and let you know, I don't like preaching these sermons any more than you like hearing them. I, I really don't. I don't get pleasure of, of going somewhere and, and preaching on things that are hard to hear. But preaching on the whole counsel of God is not always easy and requires sometimes difficult conversations about matters that a lot of times our world tries to sweep under the rug and act as though they're not a big issue when they really are. And so that's what this lesson is really about, and it's discussing things that hurt us. What does it mean to be hurt? Well, when I study the Word, it's a something that can cause physical pain or injury to something, or it's a mental pain or distress. I don't like being hurt, whether physically, emotionally, mentally. I don't want to be hurt by anything. And any time you and I go through pain, it's not pleasurable. Uh, just back in April, I um, I can't do my you know my my father's very good about midnight hours and things of that nature and run on one hour of sleep a week or something like that. Uh, with my illness, I'm not able to do that as consistently as he does. I went to a convention center for broadcasting, um, trying to look at our YouTube streaming that we do for our congregation back in Somerville. And the only flight I could get out from where we were located was at 1.30 in the morning. And then it went from that airport to Dallas. It got to Dallas around 6 a.m. And then my flight from Dallas to Memphis was at 7 a.m. So I didn't sleep uh, that that whole night. I woke up Tuesday morning. We went through the convention center, and I, I was up all night. And then got home, and I had a 2.30 afternoon Bible class to teach. And so I got home and immediately showered and got dressed for Wednesday afternoon Bible class and drove to the church building and worked on some things until class started. And then when class ended, the elders had agreed that I could just go home. Thankfully, they, they allowed that. So I went home. At about 4 p.m., after being up for over a day at that point, I, I crashed and crashed hard and fell asleep. I woke up Thursday morning in some of the most pain I've ever had in my life. And I thought, I don't know what this is. Maybe I've, I've just been sick from staying up too much. But I went to the doctor, and he sent me to the ER, and we determined that it was a Crohn's flare-up. And I can honestly tell you, I've been through Crohn's pain before, but never enough to go to the ER. And 
that has been some of the most pain I've ever felt in my life and some of the most miserable that I've ever been in my life. And I don't want to have that happen again. And I want to avoid that by all means possible. And so the doctor told me recently, don't drink as much soda as you drink. That's why I have a water today. Uh, I'm trying to avoid having that episode again because I don't want to be hurt. And I know you don't want to get hurt in life. And so sometimes, whether it's emotional, whether it's physical, we guard ourselves from hurt. You ever have a toxic relationship you had to cut out of your life? Not because you wanted to, but because it was hurting your family. And you did what was right for you and your family, even though it was painful. You didn't enjoy it, but you needed to do that. In our lesson, we're going to talk about three things. And the first is drugs. This has been one of the most painful substances in the world. It has broken up so many families, relationships, friendships. It has ruined people's jobs. It has ruined their life. And yet, we have people in our world that want to tell you that it's okay to dabble in them. A drug is a medicine or other substance which has a physiological effect when ingested or otherwise introduced into the body. A substance taken for its narcotic or stimulant effects often illegally. Now notice it doesn't say only illegally. In just a moment we're going to talk about drugs into three categories and the first one might surprise you though I hope it doesn't because it is a drug and it is legal and that is alcohol. Alcohol is a drug. Let's call it what it is. It is a drug. It is a drug that our nation and this world has said can be consumed legally past a certain age. But even in certain countries, the age limit's not 21. There are some countries where you can drink at a much younger age than 21. But alcohol is a drug. And it is estimated, I want you to notice this, that a minimum of 190,900 premature deaths are caused each year by drugs. Driving up yesterday, stopping and seeing people buying alcohol at the gas station to take home or outside smoking and doing things of that nature. And I just thought, you're not extending the amount of time you have on this earth. You're decreasing it. And some of the very people I saw yesterday might fall into this 190,900 people each year that die prematurely by the use of drugs. I want us to categorize the drugs into three categories, like I mentioned a moment ago. Alcohol. What does the Bible say about alcohol? Well, I'm told, according to 1 Peter 4 and verse 3, we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, in which we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. What Peter is basically saying is, we spent enough time doing that, let's quit it. Let's not do that anymore. We've had our fill of that, so to speak, and now we're trying to be pleasing to God, so let's stop doing the things that the Gentiles do, and let's do the things that Christians do. But also Romans 13, 13 says, Let us walk properly, as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. 1 Corinthians 10, 23-24 tells me, 
that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are helpful and all things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. There are things in this world that won't help me. They won't benefit me. They won't make my life better. They make it worse. And in fact, in another passage in 1 Corinthians, he says, I will not be brought under the power of any. Let me make that very clear. If there is anything in this life that has such a hold on me that it dominates my life, and I would be as you would, and I would call it addicted to it, it's going to be a problem at some point, more than likely. It can be as simple as being addicted to a sport. How many people love football more than they love God? How many people love hockey or basketball more than they love God? And if given the choice, would go to a game rather than go to worship? I love the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. If you looked out at my truck, it wouldn't take long to figure that out. I've got the front license plate that says Steelers on it. One of my deacons for my birthday last year surprised me with a, um, a hitch cover of the Steelers logo. And I've got a lot of Steelers stuff in my house. I wore a Steelers shirt yesterday when I was driving up here. I love the Steelers. And twice since I've been a big fan of the Steelers, I've gotten to watch them play in the Super Bowl. Both times, we had an evening service. Guess where we were? And if you know my father well enough, you know he's also a big Steelers fan. Guess where we were? We were at worship. I'm blessed where I'm at now as far as from the worldly aspect. I guess you could say blessed. I love football. Our services end for the day at noon at Somerville. And so football is no longer an issue of temptation because I don't have an evening service to go back to. But if I did, guess where I would be? Well, that's because you're the minister. It's because I'm a Christian. And because I was raised from a young age to put an importance on the things that were holy. And I cannot allow an addiction to something that I love hinder my walk with Christ. Caleb Colley, many of us know who Caleb Colley is. He wrote an article on alcohol, a deadly poison. And he points out the following things. Alcohol gets people in trouble. It causes accidents. It can cause serious health problems. And it can cause spiritual problems. But you wouldn't know it if you just watched the commercials. The commercials that promote alcohol don't show you getting into trouble. They show you as the life of the party. They show you as the coolest individual in the room. And, and boy, things are just going your way. They don't show you in the accident. There are some commercials, I will admit, that I'm very much for that do show the aspect of accidents that are caused by alcohol consumption. And they're trying to encourage people and plead with people not to drink and drive. But oftentimes, if you're going to watch a commercial and it pops up for Corona or Bud Light or one of the popular and prominent beverages of alcohol, they're not going to show that. They're going to make sure that they carefully tailor the ad. Now, on another note, dealing with this matter that we're going to talk about in a few moments, 
everything has been over-sexualized in our nation too. I saw a commercial a couple months ago. I was walking through the house. We don't really watch TV anymore that way with Netflix and Hulu. We don't have that real need to watch TV anymore. And I'm, I'm really glad because the commercials have gotten so much worse. And I do pay the extra amount of money on Hulu to have no commercials. And I justify that because I've seen what not having that sometimes puts in my home. And I haven't liked it. But I happened to be watching the NBA Finals, and one of the commercials came on, and it was for, like, gum. Okay, chewing gum. And it's a woman in a bikini, and she's walking throughout this place, and at the very end of the ad, it shows you the gum. That was about gum? Are you sure? That's what our nation's come to. It's the same with alcohol. They're not going to show you in an accident. They're going to show some beautiful woman on your arm. And yet, statistics tell us that as far as fatal accidents are concerned, according to Caleb's article, when he wrote this, alcohol is involved in 66% of fatal accidents, 53% of fire deaths, 36% of pedestrian accidents, 22% of home accidents, 45% of drownings, 50% of skiing accidents, 50% of all automobiles, and is the number one killer among the age of 25 or younger. So people my age or younger, it's the number one killer. Number one. And yet our nation tells us this is an okay thing to consume after you turn 21. I don't care if you turn 41, you shouldn't be drinking it. Now, here's something that's very interesting to me. You go to a sporting event, and they're going to serve alcohol, for instance, at a hockey game. They'll serve alcohol all the way up, and at the end of the second period, they cut it off. Because they want people to sober up. But do you know what people have figured out they can do? They go at the end of the second period and they buy a couple of cups of beer. And then they bring them back to the seat and then they can sip on them throughout the third period. So they're not sobering up. They're continuing to inebriate themselves. And when you study one of the number one causes of fights at a sporting event, you know what the number one factor is. Alcohol. People are consumed by alcohol and they get into fights. This is not a, what's the right word here? This is not a drug that makes you a better person, that it gives you a higher social status. It's a destroyer. And we need to call it that. Because anytime we don't, we open up the door for the very issues that we have found in our nation and in other nations. Trouble. Accidents, health problems, and spiritual problems. But what about tobacco? How much money do you think a year is spent on cigarettes alone? The average American spends $70 a week on cigarettes and $280 per month. Average American. Now, I'm not great at math, but I know average means there are some that spend more. And there are some that spend less. But the average... It's $280 a month. My wife's car payment is $350. That's almost her car payment. That's, in, that's incredulous. And Americans have spent a total of $80 billion yearly just on cigarettes. And yet this country can't get out of debt. 
Really? If we'd stop wasting our money, we could. If our government and if our nation would crack down hard on things that are going to kill its citizens, we could. But $80 billion. That's, I can't imagine spending that kind of money as a nation on something like this. But it's not just the wasting of money that makes this a problem. Look, I love going to the movies, okay? It's one of my favorite things to do. There's nothing better than sitting in a theater with a big old tub of popcorn as you watch superheroes fight each other for a few hours, okay? That's my opinion. That's okay if you don't agree with it, but that's my opinion. I love that. Nothing better than that for me. Enjoy that a lot. Have since I was a little boy. And if you go to the movies, you can easily spend 20 to $30, with concession prices and other things. You can easily do that. So it's not just wasting money that's a problem because technically you could argue that I waste my money by going to the movies. So long as I'm doing something right, I'm not wasting my money. I'm just entertaining myself. But wasting money is not the real argument that needs to be made. We need to look again at 1 Corinthians 23 through 24. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And I will not be brought under the power of any. How can spending $280 a month or $3,360 a year be considered good stewardship? Is it wise to partake in something that has been proven for causing blindness, type 2 diabetes, hip fractures, gum disease? If you were told today at lunch... Would you like a soda? It's guaranteed to give you cancer. I think you'd order a water. Years ago, they didn't even have the warning on the cigarette boxes. But as I drove up here yesterday, I noticed a new uh, this new trend that's happened over the last few years, vaping, which, by the way, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I can tell you, if you do a study on that, it is worse than cigarette smoking. It accelerates the damage that is caused by cigarettes. But as I drove by it yesterday, this big truck on the highway, nicotine is contained in this product and it can be an addictive substance. And then also on there, a harmful substance. You didn't have to say that. Now they require it. But we get addicted to things and we don't know how to stop. But tobacco and alcohol are not one of the more difficult drugs. They're the easiest accessible drugs. But what about the hard drugs that we have out in our nation, in our world? Why is it okay to take prescription drugs? And I, believe me, I'm sick all the time. My illness does not go away, so I'm sick even in the moment right now that I'm talking to you. So I have to take medicine to help me regulate and to help me feel better and to do and last night, for instance, I noticed I had a really bad headache and so I went to Walgreens and I bought a little bottle of Tylenol. Why was it okay for me to do that? I know, according to what we study, that first of all, doctors study for years. And when a doctor does his job correctly, he studied for years to know what medicine does and how it works. For instance, I'll tell you this little story on myself. 
when, when I first got diagnosed with Crohn's disease, they gave me prednisone. Now, I don't know if you know what prednisone is, but if you do, it's a steroid, and it, it can be a nasty steroid, okay? I was supposed to take 8 milligrams a day. The pharmacist made a typo, and they had me taking 80. 80 milligrams a day. You want to talk about turning into the Hulk? I was the Hulk. Uh, and I was a new husband, only been married six months, and I will tell you, and I, I, I've apologized to her for this, and it wasn't my fault. She knows that. Still apologized. One night she made dinner, and I came out to eat, and the prednisone was acting up, and I got upset with my wife because dinner wasn't piping hot. And I started talking to her about how dinner should be hot, and in my brain I'm saying, what are you doing? But Bruce Banner doesn't get to come out when the Hulk's in charge, okay? You know that if you've ever watched the superhero movies. And so I was just kind of a prisoner in my own body at times when these outbursts would happen. And finally I went to the doctor and said, Doc, I'm having outbursts at people. Well, how many milligrams of prednisone are you taking? Eighty? I'm sorry? Well, that's what the bottle said. Bring me the bottle. Brought him the bottle and he said, you've got to be kidding me. They'd made a mistake. And you don't just get to quit prednisone cold turkey either. You have to wean yourself off of that. But an honest mistake really affected me. Now, when I go to the doctor, I'm on a steroid right now called Bedezinine. The doctor wanted to put me on prednisone. I said, no, sir. I don't want prednisone ever again. Would any other steroid work just as well? And he says, well, Bedezinine will work. That doesn't make me have an outburst. And I only take three milligram tablets three times a day. So nine milligrams instead of 80, that works much better too. But years are spent learning how to hand out medicine. And when a doctor does their job correctly, underline that word correctly in your brain, there is a purpose for medicine. It serves a purpose. But the Bible mentions medicine and physicians. So I want us to focus on something, though. Oxycontin and other medicines like that I've also had to take before. I had my wisdom teeth removed, and they gave me Oxycontin for pain. Okay? Once I was done having pain, I still had some pills left in there. I flushed them. Not because I'm addicted and I needed to go cold turkey, but because I didn't need them anymore. Why would I want them in my house? I will not be brought under the power of any. And so anything that is addictive in its nature, just like we talked about with alcohol, with tobacco, and with harder drugs such as the drugs that we would deem illegally used, not prescription, or abusing prescription, or going out and getting meth, we, things of the net. You can put in anything you want to put in. If it's an illegal substance and you're not supposed to partake of it, I should not be brought under the power of any. Of any. Anything. But what about, as we move on from drugs, what about gambling? Look, I know, believe me, this is not a fun subject for people. And I know you're not going to find thou shalt not gamble in the Old or New Testament. And you're not going to find Jesus explicitly saying, don't go to the slots. But the Bible does have something to say about gambling. According to the Apple Dictionary, gambling is to play games of chance for money, to take a risky action in the hope of a desired result. 
And Don Blackwell's book, Truth About Gambling, he wrote, it's an uncertain, arbitrary event. The wager, something of value, such as money, that is deliberately chanced on a particular outcome. There's a winner and there's a loser. I want you to notice first, before we get into this mindset, I want to get some of the bad arguments out of the way. Before we look at why the Bible condemns it, let's get the bad arguments out of the way. These arguments are not very good to use, and this is from Don Blackwell's book, Truth About Gambling. Really, the truth about, and then gambling's a chapter. The bad argument, number one, gambling is wrong because the Bible teaches that we are to work for our money. That is true, and we are to work to make a living, but if that argument is taken at face value, if you don't work on your birthday and your grandmother gives you $20, you have sinned by taking it. See the problem with that? Grandma's just being sweet and gives you a gift. And there's nothing wrong with her giving you that $20. But if you were to take the argument that you have to work for your money, then it would be just as sinful to receive a gift of money from someone as it would be to gamble. But then also, number two, this argument needs to kind of go away from our mindset that gambling is wrong because of the risk factor. I took a risk yesterday when I got in my truck and I drove here. And tonight, when I drive home, I'm going to take a risk driving home. I helped my dad grade his premillennialism notebooks uh, for his classes, and that is a task, by the way. And we finished, we had two left, and it was 3.48 in the morning when I got home. I was exhausted. I took a risk driving home. I was awake enough to drive. But it was still a risk. And so just because something's a risk doesn't make it sinful. Life is a risk. Being a Christian is a risk, especially for those in the first century. So that doesn't make it right just because that. But if I make a weak argument, the truth suffers. Wouldn't you agree? So we've got to make the strongest arguments possible. Here's why the Bible condemns it. Covetousness. The Bible teaches, uh, and you, you can put really greed as part of this too, one of the top two reasons people will gamble is greed, I want more money, and covetousness, I want what other people have, and this is how I'm going to get it. Covetousness is condemned in the Old Testament, where in Exodus 20 and verse 17, we're told not to covet our neighbor's house, their wife, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. It is theirs. My neighbors next door are moving. They just sold their fridge to us for $75. That was in their garage. We'd been looking for a good garage fridge. But every time I looked at their fridge, I wasn't coveting it. And I paid them for it. And if I look at my neighbor's wife and covet her, I'm sinning. If I look at his house and covet it, I'm making a mistake in sinning. The same principle carries into the New Testament in Luke 12, 13 through 15. And I know from Matthew 6, 19 through 21, that my life is not based off of the physical possessions that I have. It's not. If you listen to the Dave Ramsey show or you've ever listened to the Dave Ramsey show, Dave is very quick to point out that you don't own any of the money that you've been given. God has given you that money to manage it. All of it belongs to God. I don't own anything that I have right now up here. Nothing. I don't own my tablet. I don't own my Bible. I don't own the water even. The money I spent on the water, I didn't own it. I don't own my suit, my shirt, anything. 
It all belongs to God. And someday, someone else may wear this. And someone else may use this tablet or use this Bible. It's not mine. I'm not taking it with me when I die. My life is not based on the physical possessions that are in my possession at the moment that I've got them. Because they don't belong to me in the beginning, in the first place anyways. There's the addiction factor of this. Some years ago, an online article that referenced the Dallas Times-Herald told of a pawn shop owner who had patrons who sold them artificial limbs so they could go gamble. In one case, a glass eye. In another case, gold teeth pulled out with pliers and hocked for money with which to gamble. But you remember 1 Corinthians 6.12, I will not be brought under the power of any. When I'm taking pliers and pulling my teeth out so I can get money to go gamble, it looks pretty much like I've been brought under the power of it, doesn't it? You have the influence principle. According to 1 Corinthians 8, a study of scruples and a study of meat being offered to idols, the Bible says if your brother's offended by meat, don't bring him over to your house and put meat before him. If your brother's offended by meat, don't let him see you buying any meat. Let it go. You do what you want to do and don't cause him to stumble. In an old proverb, there is a bet. There are, an old proverb, I should say, goes like this. In a bet, there is a fool and a thief. A fool and a thief. But you and I are part of the temple of God. We are a part of the church. And so we need to get out of it. This mindset that we're going to do what we want to do. Influence principle. And we are the temple of God. There are some people that make the following arguments in defense. And I'm just going to put these up here for you. But I want to talk about the last one. I actually had someone once tell me, Michael, it can't be wrong. I'm only spending $52 a year gambling. I only spend a dollar a week. And so I looked at them and I asked them, I said, if I only hit my wife once a week, would that make it okay? If I only cheated on my taxes once a year, would that make it okay? If I only killed somebody once a year, would that make it okay? If I only cheated on my wife once in a blue moon, would that make it okay? Because it's not a whole lot. It's just once in a while. The sin is not in the quantity of what you're doing, but the quality of what you're doing. So $52 a week is still wrong. $52 a year, I should say, $1 a week would still be wrong. Because the quality of what we're doing would be sinful. Not the quantity alone, but the quality of what we're doing. Now the last one, I'm not even going to say the name. We know what this is. We know it's a big problem in our nation. According to recent studies, more than 4 in 10 Americans, 43%, are now saying that this is morally acceptable. Lack of restrictions have caused this to skyrocket, in fact. In the most popular places that you'll see this viewed, a hotel or an Airbnb, 40%. A cafe or restaurant, 
30%, and in the workplace, 29%. Why is it wrong? Why is it wrong? First, we have 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18, biblically speaking. I'm told to flee sexual immorality. Now, understand what I'm about to say. This is not a divorceable offense. This is not fornication in the sense of your spouse has cheated on you. Has they, have they done something that is sinful? Yes. Are you able to put them away and be eligible to remarry? The scriptures don't teach that. They don't. Actual fornication has to take place or your spouse has to die in order for you to be scripturally eligible to remarry, according to Matthew 19.9. Will this destroy a marriage? You better believe it. First Peter 2 and verse 11 tells me, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Therefore, Colossians 3.5, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Ephesians 5.3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you. Don't let anybody be able to point at you and say, hey, you know, they're under such and such. It's not fitting for saints. It's not fitting for members of the church of Christ and for anybody that, by that matter in this world to have that named among them. But evidently, you better not let it be named among the saints. How many congregations have been ruined because of this? A member was addicted, a preacher, or an elder, whoever you want to put and by the way, women are just as much affected by this as men, despite what so many people would have you to believe. There are studies out there that show women are just as much able to become addicted to this as anybody else. This is not just a man's sin. And we have to be very careful with how we treat this because it is becoming one of the most socially acceptable sins in our nation. And people act like it's not a very big harm. Finally, I want you to notice that we don't always benefit from profound knowledge. Ecclesiastes 1, 17 and 18, Solomon says, I set my heart to know wisdom and also to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. Why, Solomon? For in much wisdom is much grief. What? He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I don't ever remember a time growing up where I had to pay the bills. My mom and dad handled that. But I remember when I left mother and father and became a husband and I started to have my own house and all of a sudden I got my first bill. I thought, I wish I could go back to being a little boy again. And boy, when the mortgage comes due every week... I, or every month, you know, goodness, I'm glad it doesn't come every week. Uh, when it comes once a month, I dread that. In much wisdom is much grief. And the more you increase your knowledge, the more you increase your sorrow. There was a time when I didn't know some of the things that I know now. And I wish I could go back. Young people, you spend all your life wanting to become an adult and wanting to be an adult and learn all the things that adults know. 
let me give you some advice that's really helpful, and I'm not that much older than you. You will regret that decision, that desire. You're going to grow up and you're going to wish you didn't learn some of the things that this life is going to teach you. And there's no way we can stop it from teaching it to you. You're going to learn about things that are not pleasant. You're going to learn about things that hurt people. The only way I can do anything to help you and the only way you can do anything to help your children and your loved one's children is to properly prepare them to deal with them. I was in the sixth grade and someone showed me a picture I didn't need to see. It's going to happen. And let's not be naive to think that it's not. And honestly, parents, you and I in our world today, carry an easily accessible way to look at things, and so we've got to protect our children from these things. I'm not saying your children don't deserve to have a phone. They're very helpful. But we better keep our children protected from these sites. Covenant eyes and other things of that nature are great resources that protect children from sites they don't need to stumble upon, and these people who operate the sites are very, very cunning and crafty, they will tag certain keyword phrases that normal children would search and link them to sites they don't need to be on. We need to protect our children. We need to protect ourselves from things that hurt us. Before we close, I'm going to turn it over to Brother Leonard and we'll start to close out this class. But I thank you for the opportunity to teach this. It hasn't been pleasant, but I know from time to time you take away the cobwebs, the spiders won't come back.